So, uh, all right, then, hey, everybody, thank you for tuning in. I am super pumped to have back on for the third time Dr. Mike Isratel, who just recently gave a TED Talk. So, as someone just said very, very uh, eloquently the other day, I'm barely qualified to carry his gym bag. So, um, <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm barely qualified to carry my own. <laughs> no, but uh, it, it's been a super cool TED talk, and um, yeah, I, I'm I, I was glad that finally the world gets to hear Mike Isratel's legendary analogies. So um, yeah, actually, actually, let me ask you this. So because I've been planning to ask this the last time I interviewed you is um, these analogies that you come up with. Is this something that you practiced at some point, or it just came intuitively to you? Um, uh, yeah, maybe not always, but it's something I grew into slowly. I started to use them. So I guess I, I did have, I didn't have explicit practice. I didn't try to practice analogies, but I taught undergraduates for a long time. And sometimes it's not enough to just state the plain scientific matter for really, especially beginner students, like, um, freshmen, when they don't know anything about exercise science, hardly science at all, you have to use analogies in order to drive the point across because sometimes you can just say something and they're like, what the hell is that? And you use a simple analogy, they're like, oh. And also, like, the way I think about concepts is I tend to break them down into pretty simple parts and just a simple underlying uh, logical structure. And then making analogies is super easy because when I see the logical structure, I can immediately recognize it in a variety of other ways and other places. Um, like, you know, so for example, just a really quick example of something, you know, has the logical structure of needing a design with a plan, then anything that needs a design with a plan, like building a building or making a car or writing a computer program, all fits as analogies immediately. But if you don't understand that something, that the logical structure is that something needs a plan, for example, then of course making analogies is a gigantic waste of time because then you don't even know which ones to make. So I think analogies are good if they come very naturally. Um, and it's just the way you think about things normally. Um, some people just don't think like that. And I think that's okay. Uh, and they're better off just presenting things more straightforward. But um, I think just by thinking about things in their basic logical ways, I think that's the best way to go about it. And then analogies come easy after that. Uh, and so um, I guess let's jump right in. The, the first question I have for you, Mike, is um, why do food choices matter in a general sense for people who are eating for body composition? Well, because some foods, I like to call them superfoods, are pretty much magical and you can eat as many of them as you want and just get as big and ripped as possible. Also, you'll never die. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that about covers it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, unfortunately, uh, I wish that was the reality. But so here's the deal. Um, so food composition, or, or basically a sort of fancy way of saying what foods you actually choose to fill your calories and macros, is not a very important detail about dieting, but it becomes a very, um, a little bit more important when you want particular things out of your foods other than just their effects on your physiology directly, but um, food may also have some psychological effects. The two effects, uh, the really the big effect that comes to mind is hunger management. Right. Um, I, I still think um, that is one of the biggest, if not the biggest impediments to fat loss diet success is um, is hunger. 
right? Hunger is something that is ever-present in the hypocolor state. The longer you diet and the more fat you lose, the higher hunger levels start to um, skyrocket. And the worse this is for outcomes, right? Because willpower is at a certain given level. Can yes. you still hear me okay? Yes, yes, yes. Perfect. You know, willpower is at a certain given level, and it can change. But um, at the average level of willpower, let's say, per dieting phase of, say, three months, is relatively you know, it's some, it exists for an individual in a certain situation. And, you know, some people have really high willpower, some people not so much, but no matter what kind of willpower you have, it is, it is um, a, a finite entity that can be overwhelmed. And as soon as you're the, you know, and hunger chips away at willpower. And at some point you can be so hungry that your willpower starts to deteriorate either partially or completely. And then you no longer make the kind of choices that, from a calories and macros perspective, result in adequate levels of weight loss and thus fat loss. So, you know, during the diet, that's a concern. After the diet, sometimes an even bigger concern. Because actually a lot of people seem to be able to complete diets, but very few people seem to be able to keep the weight off. And that requires, you know, it's kind of what they don't tell you about dieting is that the a big battle is after the battle, right? It's what you do after the diet for the next couple of months as your metabolism returns more to normal. It still requires quite a bit of hunger management. And if you slip up then, you just gain all the weight back and all this bad stuff happens. A more minor concern with hunger is that some individuals have trouble gaining weight, especially if it's with macronutrient ratios and food compositions that are better for gaining muscle, particularly you know lower fat foods and healthier foods and properly timed foods around the workout. Sometimes it can be really hard to eat that much food, and an increase in hunger is what is required, Where and that's where food choices and possible timing structures come into play. But I would say that the fat loss problem with hunger is a big one and can, through food choices and a couple of other factors like timing, can be managed to some extent. And of course, this is not an all-powerful tool, but it is an effective one that can help people, especially at the extremes. Right. So um, I think if we were to look at the trends over recent years, maybe over the course or over the last decade, then uh, flexible dieting and if it fits your macros is probably one of the prominent themes that, that emerge. So um, uh, kind of that right there kind of sums it up why then if it fits your macros ultimate type of approach to, to dieting where you're trying to fit in all kinds of tasty foods is is problematic yeah so it can be right uh, and it's definitely so if it's your macros approach really isn't very problematic during a, a muscle gaining phase because you just eat delicious foods within your macros and that tends to be very very well well promotes weight gain it's not a problem during a maintenance phase specifically if you don't really have intense hunger issues or anything like that but during a dedicated attempt at fat loss especially as the fat loss phase progresses especially if it's uh one of the numerous fat loss phases and you've already lost a lot of weight in your, you know, sort of life history and or if you're getting to lower, lower, lower body fat percentages, then just eating the foods you like starts to become a problem because uh, eat, getting very little of what you like is actually a reinforcement mechanism for wanting that even more, right? Um, it, and it, uh, I don't want to emphasize the point of addiction too much. Because I don't think that drug addiction is, uh, is like food addiction in some very, very important ways. But nonetheless, some of the same kinds of mechanisms are involved. Uh, you know, the way you give up smoking isn't just by smoking a little bit here and there. <laughs> um, you kind of just got to get away from it. So uh, this idea that we're going to have, you know, half a brownie every other day if it fits our macros 
at some point is a good thing if you're not hungry and hypocaloric. But when you're hungry or hypocaloric, that brownie start, you know, is not very satiating. It just leaves you wanting more brownie. And that can start to really get at you and cause some very, very serious hunger pains, some psychological stress. It could do even worse than that by beginning at a cycle of kind of suffering and reward, right? You basically like, I know people who program free meals or cheat meals every week or half week into their diet. They start to organize their entire life around the happiness of these cheat meals and free meals. And as soon as you start eating the free meal and cheat meal, you're already sad because you know that every single bite brings you closer to, to hunger again, which is what happens when the meal is over. And the next day you wake up, you're crankier, you want the food even more. And uh, it, it's a really, really bad cycle. So unfortunately, if it's your macros, it is basically, it's a kind of in, in the very writing of if it's your macros, it's like choose foods that you like that fit your goals. True, but the very act of choosing foods that you like in the context of a hypocaloric diet, which by definition means you'll never get enough of them to actually get satiated, may be a problem. And there may be something to do about that problem if we design diets properly. Right. Um, and, and actually, just, just to speak of that for a second, I honestly, at this point, when I see someone posting one of these ads on Facebook of, this is how you can eat burgers and cookies and pizza and still lose fat. Like, honestly, the, the only way I can describe it, it's, it's a scam. <laughs> I, I mean, technically, it is true. Yes, you can lose fat. But I can tell you right now what's in that book. It, the book will say, figure out your calories and macros, fill, fill in your protein. And then if you want, you can fit in some ice cream. But we recommend that you don't because you will be screaming hungry. But yeah. That last part is very important to mention, and many people don't mention it. Um, I, I think that I think it's a sort of a grandiose statement coming up, but um, I typically don't like to fault IFYM for this sort of thing, and I don't even like to fault the term flexible dieting because the terms don't really make it that you have to eat ice cream and cookies and pizza. That that has been a perversion by you know our completely unqualified fitness coaches on Instagram that took this shit way too far. Flexible dieting means that you can be flexible, that there may be times where you decide it's a good idea to eat cheeseburgers and candy, and there are times you decide to be flexible and go the other way and eat foods that are more restricted for a reason, right? The, the IFOM diet is not eat anything and it's okay. It's flexible dieting. It means that you can adjust your diet to your goals and that means sometimes you're going to be eating more foods, but that's part of the flexibility, right? It, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, if you see someone who's really good at yoga, right, that doesn't mean they're always in a pretzel. Yes, they're very flexible, but sometimes they stand up. Sometimes they stay seated normally, and sometimes they walk around and you can't even tell they do yoga, right? That means that they're not always showing off their flexibility because sometimes you just need to sit the fuck down or walk around and go to a train stop. You don't need to be pretzeled up, but they can if they need to. So if, if the occasion calls for it, cheeseburgers and pizza are totally cool, but sometimes when the occasion doesn't, if you're still pretzeled up in the fucking train station for no reason, you're doing yourself a disservice because you're, you're now being like, flexibility is so great, let's all be pretzeled up forever and do weird poses everywhere. Well, that's nonsense. That's not the point of yoga and it's not the point of flexible dieting. Just because you can do something doesn't mean it's always the best idea. It's like learning a martial art and just starting to beat everyone up. Like It's their reason. It's not to just use all the time. Hopefully that makes some sense. No, absolutely. And, uh, and I, overall, I think that the flexible dieting trend has been a great one. The the only thing uh, that kind of I think is, is sad is that 
the when when people are starting to become associated with different businesses or services that are derived or that are based on the theme of flexible dieting and then they even refuse to make the disclaimer of you know like most of your food should probably still come from nutritious single ingredient type of foods uh, but you can fill in whatever 20-ish percent of your diet with with everything that you want. I think that's, that's a disclaimer that's not that um, politically incorrect to make. Sure, sure. And I, I think the unfortunate part is that if you start making too many disclaimers, you run into a marketing problem yeah. um, where, you know, I mean, you're familiar with, with RP, the company that I, um, that, that I co-founded. And man, if you ever see our advertisements, they're boring as fuck. Um, because we can't say anything that's not scientifically valid. So we end up being like, our diet templates are effective. Try them. And people are like, will they work super well? And we're like, I don't know. They're going to work okay. But, you know, <laughs> we, we can't lie to people. So it could be like, can I still eat all my favorite foods? We're like, eh, some of them. But <laughs> certainly not all. But it's, it's tough, you know, because when you're trying to, especially if you, some, some companies and some, individuals have taken that that flexible dieting angle like you said a bit far and have based their entire marketing strategy on it they have to be basically like you know they name their diets like the burger ice cream diet and it's like oh you know you can't put too many disclaimers on that because it loses followers it loses that wow appeal um i mean at nrp not to toot totter or more i mean there's a bunch of companies just like us i mean um you know uh what's that called um eric helms's uh company uh, 3dmj and a bunch of others are very similar philosophies that we don't even engage in that kind of, uh, you know, advertising. We don't have a spin, but, uh, I mean, a lot of people who have spin sure as hell do well financially. The, the, the problem is that like companies like 3DMJ and, and my company were against the idea of spin to begin with. And, and, and that's, you know, it, forget about companies just, just as individuals, you know, you and I are both like when we see like a quack or a quirk or like, what about this zany new hack? Like, we just don't like that to begin with on principle. We're like That's not how things get done in this world is through fucking quacks and hacks. And Can you imagine losing weight eating just cheeseburgers? Like, yeah, like I don't, I don't feel like that's an appeal. You know what I mean? Because I think grown adults should know better. Unfortunately, we're both wrong and a lot of grown adults don't. <laughs> but then they get themselves into trouble because they follow these sorts of extreme diets and then they realize that they're starving like crazy and they, their cheeseburger promise turned into a quarter of a cheeseburger every four days and, and then they're in a bad way. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Um, so, so to to speak of uh, of this diet management thing, uh, another thing that um, I've heard you touch on this briefly at uh, somewhere, but but I haven't heard you speak of this uh, at length, is um, you know when you're finishing a fat loss phase, even if you're just uh, like a jump up type of person. And especially it's even more amplified when you're getting ready for a bodybuilding stage and you're incredibly lean. But usually people, when they are finishing up a diet, then they're kind of of the mindset that they're willing to do whatever it takes. It's not a, for a lot of people, it's not a huge issue at that point uh, when to, to give up your favorite foods, whatever. However, exactly at that time when you're finishing the diet, and you've touched on it before, that, you know, regaining the weight is often the biggest issue. And people, you know, you're leaner, you are, you feel restricted, you have less uh, of the hormones that are associated with with uh, satiety. So uh, that's when you're at a pretty vulnerable position. So what what is your standard strategy for kind of quote unquote reversing out of that vulnerable uh, state when you're pretty prone to gaining a ton of weight if you're not 
careful? And what do most people get wrong about this? Yeah. So um, uh, my strategy is typically to begin to return to maintenance immediately and or even a small surplus, like a, a 200 to 500 calorie surplus, to train very hard for hypertrophy because the sensitivity to nutrients at that point is so insane that it's almost like you're on supplemental insulin, right? The kind of um, response people report to hypertrophy training post-heavy diet or post-show diet is akin to the kind of response people report to when they inject insulin, like for bodybuilding. Like the pumps are like absurd, right? Like you, you get sore for a day and then you heal completely the next day and you're like, oh my God, like this is totally insane, yeah. right? And it is because your insulin sensitivity is just completely, nutrient sensitivity in general is completely off the charts, which can be a good thing because I think it can promote some pretty decent hypertrophy then. But... I think there are two big mistakes people make that have to be avoided. One big mistake that people make is to try to slowly reverse out of a deficit. I think that's just nonsensical. There are some of my colleagues um, at other uh, institutions and companies are more passionate about this than I am. But, um, you know, as soon it's kind of like the, the deficit is the bad thing that's causing all of these bad things. Maintenance is the only maintenance or service. Surplus is the only state that's going to start healing this physiological disruption, right? Um, reducing the size of the deficit instead of going straight to maintenance just prolongs the state of the, of the damage. But at the same time, doesn't it's not basically you're not recovering yet. It, it's almost like this, right? Let's say I run in to – this is a really extreme analogy, but I think it works just on basic principles. Let's say – this is going to be super fucked up, but let's say like – you you run in, you're a super special spy, and I'm captured by terrorists, so you run into a warehouse, and there's a blowtorch pointed at me, okay, uh, and it's literally burning, like, my stomach, like, it's just fucking on, and I'm, like, being burned alive, and I'm like, oh, help me, Abel, help me, and you're like, okay, okay, and you start slowly turning down the fire. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Can you turn it off? And you're like, no, 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 we can't turn it off too fast because your body's not used to it. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? Like, point number one, turn it off. Now, here's the next question. Is it a good idea to just splash that area after turning it on with a ton of cold water? Maybe not, right? Maybe the tissue has been damaged so much that it's necrotic, and if you splash it with a really big stream of cold water, a bunch of it could just fall off instead of heal, and then I have a huge hole in my stomach, right? There, there might be some a, a, you know, really crazy inflammatory response. It may be too big of a shock to just try to cool it down right away. So maybe at the very least you turn it off and then maybe slowly start cooling the area, right? Something like that. That's logical. But to say that it's logical to start turning down the heat is 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 not. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. So rule number one, don't stay in a deficit. Go to maintenance at least. There is a considerable amount of very intelligent debate about whether it is optimal to go to maintenance or a slight surplus. We can get into that, but I don't think it's a big deal because I think the, the real fight is between the two extremes of staying in a, in a deficit, which is bad, and the other bad extreme is when people go the other route, the splashing the you know wave of cold water route, and they fall off the deep end and just start eating everything in sight. Okay, people will say like, well, you know, I switched to a surplus after 
cutting phase before and I just got super fat. So I don't think you should switch right to a surplus. Yeah. And I'm like, well, how much was your surplus? And they're like, I don't know, like 2000 calories a day. I'm like, holy shit. Like when else would that work? <laughs> like you could do that after not dieting for two years and you'll still get just as fat, probably fatter. <laughs> so it's one of the situations where those are the two extremes, right? So I think the, the good solution is getting at maintenance or just above. Now the thing is, and here's where I think we could bring this conversation back into these anti-hunger strategies. When you come back to maintenance and or a slight surplus, your hunger levels are so messed up at that point that even maintenance or a slight surplus is going to feel like a super restrictive diet. It is going to be hunger inducing. So we have to have some tools to stay at maintenance or just above and slowly ramp up the calories and slowly take away these tools as our hormones readjust, as we regain some weight, not too much weight, of course, because that would violate all the stuff we're doing, and as our bodies return to normal. Does that make sense? So, so we basically like, you say, well, if you're just going back to maintenance, why do you need these anti-hunger strategies? Because when your leptin and ghrelin levels are fucked up enough, maintenance feels like you are starving to death. So, and, and that's why, you know, there's no surprise that most people who lose weight gain it back because these hormones particularly are literally designed to do exactly that. After you've lost weight during a famine, uh, which is what they're designed for or designed by evolution, right? Um, after you've, you know, lost weight and you're back into a free, free, free feeding environment where you have all the food you want, the hormones are literally designed to basically get you to eat all the calories back and still go back to the same weight. But because we don't want that to happen and or if we want that to more muscle and less fat, which means we have to do it more slowly. We have to have some anti-hunger strategies so that we can, on our own choice, be at maintenance or just above, as opposed to on impulse, end up 2,000 calories above the situation. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this, this brings up a lot of good points of discussion, but um, my experience has exactly been the same. I've dieted down to single-digit body fat levels multiple times in my life, and more often than not, I rebounded pretty badly. And in retrospect, my biggest mistake was always uh, not being careful enough with my food selection once the diet was over and I was trying to go into a maintenance or a surplus. And and I think there are uh, logical and interesting debates, like you said, about how fast should you go into a surplus. But I think what something that we can universally agree on is that one thing that you should be slow with is the types of palatable foods that you re-implement into your diet. Absolutely, and I have a lot to say about that if you're interested. <laughs> yes, please, yeah. So um, we have this, basically, this um, a, a couple of intersecting um, conundrum here, or conundra. Can you hear me still? Yep, yep. Okay, perfect. The uh, I'm on an iPhone, and when someone makes a, a call, it just stops everything else. And just, I, I hate it. So anyway, it's the world's shittiest phone. That's a great computer, but it still thinks it's a phone. So when you are stopping a diet, and you're in a super hungry state, and you're reintroducing back to maintenance, um, there are a couple of realizations that have to be understood and accepted in order to generate a logical framework based upon. Uh, upon which you're going to move forward. One of the pieces of framework is that you're going to want to eat lots of food and you're not really going to be able to get full uh, very easily. Fact number one. Fact number two, hyper palatable, very the most delicious, crazy food that you want 
its relationship of fullness generation of satiety of, or palatability relative to its calorie load is going to be really, really shitty. Uh, the shittiest because these are the foods people use on a mass gaining phase when they literally can't cram any more food down. Like you can always eat a little bit more Taco Bell or McDonald's, but you, you know, just chicken and white rice is at some point you're just like, there's no way I can eat any more of this shit. Right. So these foods are literally designed to have this ratio of palatability to calories. That's like egregious, but that's exactly what you don't want. So if you're looking to fill up on cheeseburgers, in the post-dieting phase, you are looking at a fool's errand. Right? It's just not going to be possible. A slight complexity, but it turns out to be a benefit in this case, is what I can term here um, like a hedonic staircase. And work with me here. Right? Palatability staircase or hedonic staircase. Here's the deal. One of the biggest things you look forward to after the completion of a diet is the return of food as a pleasurable thing. Particularly with the milieu of hormones that you're experiencing at the end of a diet, you can't wait for food to bring you pleasure. Right? I mean, this is like, if anyone doubts this, then they simply have never done a fat loss diet. There's no point discussing it with them. Right? But as soon as you've done your first fat loss diet, and if, if, it was, if it was done extremely enough, then you know exactly what we're talking about. So everyone's on the same page. Um, you can't wait to make yourself happy with food. But the thing is, is that um, normally if we're not in a very um, altered psychology post-diet, let's say we're just normally maintaining and we decide to make ourselves happy with food, we have to reach – food. food's happiness, ability to make us happy can be ranked kind of like on a staircase with lower steps to higher steps. And we usually – um, are kind of in the middle of that with our normal foods. So we have to reach for the very top of the staircase to make ourselves happy with food. So for example, like if someone's like, ooh, um, let's have some fun tonight. Let's eat something delicious. And you're like, okay, what do you want? Do you want like just chicken and pasta? Most people would be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? That's not good. That's like worse than the average food we eat. Like it's not even flavored. And you're like, okay, I messed that up. Sorry. How about some really awesome lobster or sushi or steak, some gourmet food? And now people are like, ah, that's the stuff, right? That's the most delicious, most hedonic food. Yeah. Normally, that's the only kind of food that really gets us high, so to speak, from food, right? Nobody – like if you're on a mass-gaining diet and someone posts their Instagram post and they're on a diet and they're like, got some chicken and broccoli today and it's more than usual. I love it. Look how delicious it is. Like you look at the picture, you're like, that's, that's not delicious. That's ridiculous. That, that's disgusting. You couldn't pay me to eat any more of this shit. I'm tired of it, right? So only the most hedonic food normally works. But here's and, – and so here's the problem. Most people, when they end a diet, what have they been fantasizing about the entire time? The most hedonic food because that's like the ultimate sort of situation where you're like, oh, my God, I can't wait to finish my diet so I could get this maximum huge nuclear explosion of pleasure and just get to the best food right away. And it's true. If you do indulge in that kind of food right after a diet, it's going to be the best tasting food you've ever eaten in your entire life. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's going to take you down a road where you get fat as hell and the entire purpose of the diet is just completely unclear. So that's not an option. The good news is steps on that hedonic staircase that are usually below where you're standing are now all above where you're standing. At the end of the diet, you're solo on that hedonic staircase that's anything versus your hypocaloric diet is a step above. So my huge recommendation is this. Start on the lower steps and slowly work up. What's the lowest step? 
It's really simple. More of the same boring foods you were eating on your diet, period. And if your diet is down enough, that is a super welcome, super awesome, super happy thing. Like when you finish a diet, normally you have 50 grams of carbohydrates and 40 grams of protein, 15 grams of fat. If you just double the size of that meal, let's say, you just double the size of half of your meals, then all of a sudden that's a whole lot of pasta and chicken and broccoli and that stuff fills you up. You can't wait to eat it. It's amazing. And you're sitting there in front of the TV going, oh my God, this chicken and broccoli is amazing. And people are like, what the hell is wrong with you? You're like, I just dieted for four months. That's what's wrong with me. And they're like, so you're really enjoying that? You're like, yes, I could eat double this if I, if I had to. Perfect. The good news is, is here's we have two birds with one stone. One, we're super happy. We're getting what we wanted, which is the hedonic pleasure of food. But we're also not getting super fat because it's very easy to control the amount of this low palatability food. We don't, you know, there's not, you're not going to eat an extra 5,000 calories of chicken and broccoli. You're just not, right? So it's easy to stay within limits, yet fill up our hedonic, um, uh, you know, cup, so to speak. Now, after a couple of weeks or a couple of days, depending on how fast metabolism is just, let's say after uh, two weeks, just for convenience purposes, if the only change you've made is you're eating more of this quote-unquote clean food. I hate to use that term, but you know, healthy, um, bodybuilding type, low palatability food. After two weeks or so, your metabolism is now upregulated and also like the food's just not entertaining you as much anymore. And you're starting to recover psychologically. Like you're not fantasizing about food all the time. And also your metabolism is sped up. And now you can actually raise your calories a bit more. So what you do then is you start to eat a little bit more uh, of the foods that are still, let's say, low in calories and low in fat. And only, I only say low in fat because that's a really great way to keep foods low in calories. But that are a little tastier than you usually eat. For example, uh, flavored Greek yogurt or low-fat uh, graham crackers, um, frozen yogurt, right, things like that, which are not um, low-fat, uh, low-calorie ice creams like Halo Top or Enlightened or something like that. These are the kind of foods that if you got right after you finished your diet, you would have just eaten so many of them, you would have like shit blood or something like that. But now, because you're kind of used to phase one, these foods are an extra hedonic boost, and then they're appropriate at that phase. And after maybe four weeks or so, you can now start to have your first real, actual, super indulgent cheat meals. But here's the deal. By the time you have those indulgent cheat meals, they're still super fun. They're super awesome. But they don't completely throw you for a loop and you don't end up eating the entire table. You're comfortable with just one cheat meal because you've been letting the gasket out slowly, so to speak, and you're not that bad off anymore. And, and, and I just want to finish this analogy with one more really critical piece of information. If, if you go straight to the super hedonic foods right away, the backtracking is almost impossible. Right. As soon as you spend a couple of days eating cheeseburgers and cookies and ordering pizza, like the tastiest shit with the most calories, if someone's like, all right, you've had your fun. Now let's go back to just normal clean eating, but more food that no longer offers you any kind of pleasure. It's a step down the staircase because you've been hanging out the top now. You don't get any pleasure out of that kind of food. What you're going to do then is try to eat it for a couple of days, get super bored and then go back to satisfying your hedonic 
sensation, your hedonic needs with, again, those cheat foods and, again, be over calories and, again, get super fat. So a really, really big important point here is to, in some, in some sense, dope out the hedonic pleasure, the palatability of food, start with more of the less palatable foods, increase the palatability and calorie load of the foods slowly as your body adjusts, which means two things. One, you recover well and you don't gain an excess amount of weight. And two, you continuously have more and more fun as the diet ends. There's never a bad time. There's never a shock where you have to go back into jail, so to speak, back away from the foods you love. So I'm actually advocating it for individuals that need this because um, some people can get away without it. But for individuals that are very sensitive to this rebound stuff, like if you finish a bodybuilding show, a really big diet, do not go and get a cheat meal. Don't do it. Go and get more clean food, eat that, keep eating it. Two weeks later, start to spice up your diet with frozen yogurt, low-fat ice cream, that sort of thing. And only maybe two to four weeks after the end of the diet, start peppering in real cheat meals. For the last two diets that I finished, I had my true cheat meals something between two and three weeks after I finished the diet. And it, these have, diets have been landmark phases for me in which I regained much less fat than I had on previous diets. Yeah, um, uh, this this was brilliantly laid out. And, uh, and, and I think another big consideration for people to keep in mind for why you sh probably shouldn't go for the crazy calorie-dense, hyper-palatable stuff right away is because once you're finished the diet, simply because a lot of the satiety mechanisms that are uh, kind of the, the way your brain perceives satiety is, is through a variety of mechanisms. Probably some of it is insulin mediated from the carbs you're eating. Probably some, some of it is uh, fat mediated. And when you're on very low calories, those satiety mechanisms are obviously suppressed. And that's why people load up on really low calorie, high volume stuff, because that's the only form of satiety that they can really get at that point is just filling up their stomach. And probably at that point, you're really reliant on high volume foods and you're still in that state when you're finishing your diet. So even if you are eating very calorie dense, hyper palatable stuff, you're still requiring that high volume component from your diet. And if you're doing that with super high calorie foods, then that will be very problematic. Would you agree with that? Exactly. Exactly. It's like you've been training, in a sense, to eat the most food possible, and all of a sudden, your training is unleashed onto the world of high-calorie-dense, palatable food. It's the worst possible combination. Like, I have eaten amounts of food post-diet um, in one meal that, to me, right now, at the top of a mass-gaining phase, even though I'm 20 pounds heavier or 15 pounds heavier, seem unbelievable. Like, I just can't repeat that. <laughs> um like if you took me to that restaurant now that I, you know, I ate just like two huge pancakes that were the size of, you know, a, each was the size of a serving plate. I ate both of them and I ate my regular meal. If you'd said right now, hey, Mike, let's do this now, I'd be like, I eat like a quarter of that pancake and throw up everywhere. This is not going to happen. So we're really primed to be eating machines as soon as we're done with a diet. And that is precisely what we have to engineer our diet to not allow us to do. So, you know, people say like intuitive dieting, listen to your body. Always listen to your body. Just realize it's not always saying the right stuff. It's like listening to your children. You got to listen to your children, but a lot of times they say completely dumb shit that's just really not a good idea to do. Yeah, exactly. And 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 another critical component um, that uh, you you touched on, but but I, I want to take or bring it home even more is that. There is a time component to all of this as well. So um, one reason why it's probably good not to have a 10,000 calorie cheat meal right after your show is because 
even if you are, I mean, you could make the argument that, okay, you're eating 10,000 calories on one day, that's a, maybe a 7,000 calorie surplus. But it's not the same as having maybe a, a 500 to 1,000 calorie surplus for one week or for 14 days. Um, so even if, like, it, it doesn't quite work out math-wise that way, it's there are certain mechanisms, satiety mechanisms that take your body some time to to get back in order so that's why it's probably a better idea to take it a bit slower oh my god yeah by a long shot so i'll tell you this um huge cheat meals paired with periods of sort of paying for the cheat meal by continuing a deficit right because that's what you're gonna have to do right um that is the best way to promote continual hunger and essentially disordered eating pattern um, if you want to continue to want cheat meals, just have huge cheat meals once or twice a week and be in a slight deficit or pretty, pretty sizable deficit the other days of the week. And you will literally continue that pattern. It is a self-continuing pattern because the cheat meals give you that bit of hedonic pleasure. And then the days afterwards rebuild that desire for that pleasure. And it gets to be this this uh, self-perpetuating pattern. It's a nasty pattern. The way to squash long-term hunger is to continue to eat day in and day out at either maintenance or especially a slight surplus. After four weeks of eating every day at a slight surplus, it actually gets annoying to eat at a slight surplus, and you're officially recovered. You actually know when you're you know when you're officially recovered from dieting when someone's like, "Hey, do you want to go out for a cheat meal?" and you're like, "Ah." Like you, can, you would never say that in a million years a week after dieting. But if you're like, I don't know, can I just eat normal food and not eat a lot? People are like, what the hell's wrong with you? Well, nothing anymore. But it, it's one of those things where people say like, okay, I know I don't want, I don't want a big surplus, but I'm just going to run the math and I'm just going to have a 10,000 calorie meal one day. And then the other you know, six days or whatever, I'm just going to cut my calories by a shitload. You are engineering disordered eating patterns. That's exactly what you're doing. It's a disaster. It, it fails almost every single time. It's just going to drive you insane. And there's, it doesn't promote recovery. Here's the really unfortunate part of this. So at RP, we work with, we've worked with like, you know, literally thousands of people so far. And something that our, our diet coaches perennially see, uh, they see this very often in female dieters, is, you know, when people say I've been cutting for like two years, but I haven't lost any weight my metabolism must be broken. It's not that metabolism. Metabolism works just fine. What they do is they, they are on a hypocaloric diet that entire time, but it's, it's pulsated with big cheat meals. So they're dieting really well for six days and then the seventh they go nuts and they repeat. That kind of structure keeps them in that loop. It keeps them going in that loop. It's a really, really bad idea. Um, and, and, and they'll end up uh, continuing that process because they don't have, unfortunately, they're not in the circumstance psychologically to will themselves into a dedicated surplus. Because what they'll do is as soon as they do a surplus for two or three days, they'll start to feel guilty that they're getting fat and they'll start to cut again and they'll rebound and cut and rebound and cut. And there's no way to live. But if you do live like that, that is not balance. That is the opposite of balance. It is a completely, um, just completely jarring way of going about things, and it leaves you in a permanent state of hormonal and neuroendocrinological imbalance. You're basically always in a starvation mode or getting back to one, and that's really bad, and it just really causes you to have no good results. 
but plenty of suffering for months and sometimes years on end. Yeah, that's that's hundred percent right. And uh, I, you posted one time on Facebook, which I, I think that quote sums it up perfectly. That if you are alternating between binging and low calorie periods too often, then you're getting all of the negative uh, effects of low calorie dieting and none of the benefits of high calorie dieting. So that that's perfectly true. That's it. That's really unfortunate, and a lot of people get caught in it. Yeah, and 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 the funny thing is, is that. Um, you know, partially because this is kind of, um, you know, maybe five, ten years ago, we were we lived in an area where guys were on permabulks when they were just getting super fat and uh, they were just bulking all the time, way beyond the point that it was reasonable. Now it's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. Most guys that I see around me are always on a permacut. They're year-round trying to get to 7% body fat. And... Um, I, I've been I've been there. So basically, the first couple of years of, of my lifting career was spent basically on a perpetual dieting phase. And the funny thing is, is that in the past year, I actually started eating. And I can say that after several years of lifting, I made more gains in this previous year than I have done in my first couple where I should have made my newbie gains, which is ironic. That's a hell of a trick. You basically saved your newbie gains for when your your body was like, yeah, I'll give you these gains as soon as you feed me. And it just like looked at a stopwatch for a while. And then you're like, okay, here's some food. It's like, finally. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's just a sad, sad reality. The, the, the final thing I, I want to ask you about, and uh, I've heard you talk about this uh, in a couple of podcasts, but uh, in case some some sociopaths miss that, uh, <laughs> I just want to bring bring it to them again. Um so you talked about how you at RP uh, take people through a process where you're basically reversing them out of this perpetual cutting interspersed with uh, periodic binging episodes kind of uh, purgatory that a lot of people unfortunately get into uh, and how you kind of get people out of that state where they are as close to having an actual eating disorder as possible, but didn't quite get there just yet. So uh, would you mind sharing that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, in, in um, psychology and psychiatry, there's, um, you know, all disorders, are uh, almost all disorders are spectrum disorders, which means that we all exhibit uh, various uh, propensities for certain behaviors, but they're only considered disorders if they meet kind of um, some, some objective cutoff criteria for how frequently and how severely they occur, right? Um, like if you, like I have you know, elements of Tourette syndrome, for example, where I like blink my eyes. If you've ever seen any of my interviews, I blink my eyes way too goddamn much. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like really awkward, long blinks. Uh, but I don't meet many of the other characteristics, so I don't qualify for having Tourette's, but that is a Tourette-style behavior. Similarly, there is a spectrum of eating patterns which can become incrementally more disordered in various ways, and those are called uh, disordered eating patterns. After some point, when if you take a, you know, a, a, get evaluated by a psychologist or psychiatrist, if they're bad enough, then they're called a legitimate eating disorder, right? But up until they are, regular nutritionists, dietitians, and, and uh, coaches can help you. As soon as you cross that line into um, an eating disorder, then it's up to medical professionals, um, registered dietitians, and or psychologists and psychiatrists, mostly the latter, actually, to help you. So at RP, we don't actually work with the latter group, but we do work with people up until the very end of the disordered eating spectrum. They're not quite as serious as it could be, but still a problem areas. 
And what we do with a lot of individuals is so the typical story in RP is we try to screen for these individuals beforehand, but a lot of them have gotten pretty adept at, unfortunately, sort of fooling themselves into thinking they don't have a problem, right? Um, so what ended up happening is they'll say, well, I want to cut or I want to do a fat loss phase. And they say, oh, okay, um, you sure, right? And they're like, yes. Right. Uh, and they start and they start to do this jumbled roller coaster up and down stuff that you and I were talking about, like binge, purge, binge, purge. And after a couple of weeks or months of this, their diet coach usually recognizes the pattern and basically have a very serious, very extended talk with these individuals to say, look, you know, you're in a very bad way. This is unsustainable. I cannot recommend that you continue to try to lose fat for now. What we need to do is heal up your metabolism, heal up your psychology a little bit with a maintenance phase where we just keep your calories constant. You're not going to gain any more than about five pounds of just body water. We do this for anywhere between one and, well, sometimes up to six months. That's extreme, usually one to three months. And then once you're healed up, then we can go and try a fat loss phase and it'll work much better. Um, and individuals that go through this process and actually put in the work very many of them do have success. Unfortunately, a lot of individuals um, are so attached to the idea that they always have to be on a fat loss phase. They're so un uh, um, they cannot even gain five pounds of body water without feeling like shit that they revert back even during a maintenance phase and start cutting right away. Like we'll have some questions to our coaches like, okay, how much weight am I expected to lose on this maintenance phase? Right. And I didn't misspeak. That's the question. And it's like, well, none. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's stuff like that. It's just um, a lot of the, the closer you get to an eating disorder, the, the more difficult the situation becomes. And, and I would say that with probably half of the clients that get into this kind of realm, we help them and they move on very well. Like there was one client in particular who basically had like fits of crying. When, when even thinking about the idea of maintaining and not cutting anymore led her to tears. After she did a whole maintenance phase for three months, she came back and just rocked a fat loss phase, lost like 12 pounds of fat and kept it off and never came back. Amazing, right? Half of individuals seem to do that. Probably another half of them could just continue in this disorder cycle and, and for all of our tools. Mind you, almost everyone at our company has a PhD. Many of them are registered dietitians. We can't help them. Um, so it's a very serious thing potentially. So, um, and, and it can become more serious the longer you do it. That's the real problem. So if you're one of these individuals or you know someone that is experiencing this kind of binge purge cycle, the faster you start to try to get out of it, the better things are going to be. Yeah. And, and, and it's important to keep in mind for people that if you are heavily into body composition oriented dieting, if you go through, uh, you know, grueling fat loss phase when you get very lean, it's almost inevitable at some point to develop at least some degree of disordered eating patterns, right? It, it's it's very hard not to, at least temporarily. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what you have to remember is note to yourself that this is a wrong way of thinking. It is a diseased way of thinking. 
And it is not something that you are going to understand as a good thing. You're going to understand it as a temporary thing and necessary evil. And as soon as your diet is over, you're going to begin doing the work of fixing those diet patterns and thought patterns by doing all the stuff that we talked about recently. Food palatability reward, rebuilding the diet, taking a nice long maintenance phase or a surplus, et cetera, et cetera, to make sure that you're taking care of your psychological health as well as your physiological. And, and I think... I have to emphasize that there's a very, very big difference between experiencing mild versions of disordered eating patterns, which everyone does in a fat loss phase, and experiencing it in two ways. One is a way in which you know that they're super fucked up and they're wrong, but they just happen to be side effects and you're ready to deal with them, versus taking them seriously and actually believing that they reflect a realistic state of mind. Right? If you start to take them seriously and think, no, I really am I do need to cut forever. I really do hate how I look and I really, you know, I hate this bloating and all this stuff and uh, et cetera. And you get caught up in that, then it starts to become a problem. So you kind of have to, when you go through a rough patch, you kind of think, no brain, I know what you're doing, but I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to handle this. Um, I, it's a really stupid analogy, but I think it uh, nonetheless works is, you know, when you're drunk, like if for those of our listeners who drink and that's been forever since I drank, but you know, when you're drunk, you can either do something stupid as shit, like get into your car and start driving, or you can be like, you know what, I'm drunk, and I know that I'm drunk, so I'm just not going to bother doing anything dumb. The shit I know is dumb, right? And as soon as it's just over up, I'm going to know how to fix the, the things that, you know, that went wrong when I'm drunk. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if someone's, you know, it's like someone's like, hey, do you want to go, do you want to go, like, drive to the club to go dancing? You're going to be like, okay, I feel like I can, but I also know that I'm not in a position to tell. <laughs> so I'm just going to go ahead and say no. <laughs> right? So it's one of those things like when your mind is lying to you at the end of a diet, remember that your mind is lying to you, uh, which is very different than the advice of just try to willpower through it and just do the right thing. Well, you're not going to be able to do the right thing, but you're at least not going to do the wrong thing because you're going to know to stick to a plan that you made in, in the beginning. This is why actually a coach is really great because you could just tell the coach, like you say to the coach, hey, I feel like doing this and that. And the coach is like, well, that's wrong. And I can tell you right now that that's wrong. Oh, thank God you're here, right? But even if you don't have a coach, just know that your brain is lying to you. But if you don't know it, if you start taking it seriously all the time, boy, it's going to lead you down some very, very disordered paths. Yeah, and, and, and the final thing I just want to tell to people who might be in this uh, in this boat right now, and I'm speaking from experience because I, I've been there just like I think many people who have dieted down to lean levels multiple times, is that it's easy to uh, get really scared from the prospect of like, oh my God, I may have developed some disordered eating pattern. But one thing that really helped me understand this more than anything is when I actually heard you speaking in the Performance Summit Conference in Amsterdam that food is one of the most profound biological drivers of humans. It Besides, you know, oxygen and water, all these things. And when you are chronically trying to play around with Uh, depriving yourself of one of the core things that drive humans on a biological level it's it's only a matter of time until your biology will affect your psychology in some way that will drive you down paths that are not that could be considered not so healthy or disordered so 100 it's like um 
You know, when uh, you've tra- I'm sure you've trained individuals that have never trained before, yeah. and yeah. they um, will get a burn in their quads and like a leg press or a squat, and they'll look at you and be like, something's wrong. And you have to smile and say, nothing's wrong. Pain is just a part of this process. Your body doesn't like to work hard, but some good things there. So listen to your body, note what's going on, but then choose the rational thing. Um, it's the same idea with dieting. Like some disordered stuff is just going to happen. Just don't um, don't fall for it. Don't follow the path. Know what remedies to take. And eventually you'll look back at it and be like, wow, thank God I did the right thing, even though I didn't feel like doing it at the time. Uh, and that's kind of what uh, oftentimes really kind of differentiates humans and animals. Humans have the ability to stick to principles-based decisions that overarc in, in long-term time. They're not just do what's immediately uh, apparent to them. Uh, you know, like, well, I feel like eating pizza, so I'm going to do that. Well, you know, that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> So if whatever, you know, if something feels right, it may or may not be correct. So just remembering that, I think, is a really good idea uh, and being calm and logical about your decisions. And also, I'll say this, knowing when to push and when to not push. You know, some people will be like, well, you know, all those, I got all these tools. Let's go to like 4% body fat. And a lot of times, especially for, uh, we tend to notice this with female clients. Why? Like there's a, always a couple of females that are like hanging out at like 17% body fat and they want to be like 12%. You just have to sit them down and be like, okay, 12%, you will no longer have your period. Your bones will slowly deteriorate, causing you really bad time in old age. You're going to feel like shit all the time. You're going to be starving all the time. And you're not going to be able to have any fun with your friends. And everything you eat is going to bloat you up by two kilos the next day. And But at 17% fat, you're not at risk for any of those things. But you still have a six-pack and you're just having the time of your life. Which one's it going to be? And, it, you know, a lot of times I think – um, unfortunately, this is something that um, differentiates true physique competitors from individuals that are just their first deep foray into the fitness world. True physique competitors um, know that there is a time and a place for looking like you're in contest shape, and there's a time and a place for not looking like you're in contest shape. Like, you know, if you talk to a physique girl who's off season, you'll be like, oh, you were so much leaner last time I saw you. She's like, yeah, it was just like pre-show. It was two weeks before my pro debut. You'll be like, well, you don't, you're not as lean right now. She'll, she's just going to be like, yeah, I know. And you're going to be like, that doesn't bother you? She's like, no, <laughs> I can get lean tomorrow if you want, but that's just not the plan, right? But I think individuals without those kinds of short-term logical structured goals of I have a competition I have to be lean for, and then after that I go back to being healthy – I think some people who just go to the gym and train really hard and follow a diet, they're like, okay, I want 14% fat, then I want 12% fat, then I want 10%. And, and a funny thing to say is like, hey, wh- what show are you getting ready for? And they're like, well, I'm not getting ready for a show. You're like, well, you know, all the people that are leaner than you that are getting ready for shows, they don't do this year round. And, and sometimes that shocks people because, you know, another thing is this the media perception, again, it, it can be illusory. You know, uh, here, uh, really, I don't know, hopefully people know this already, but here's a tidbit for Instagram. A lot of us in the, who, who compete in physique sports, we get a lot of pictures taken and we take a lot of selfies when we're in shape and then we dope out the selfies over the course of the year, <laughs> right? So it looks like we're in shape all the time. But we're not. <laughs> so a lot of people just follow people on Instagram who seem to be always in shape and think, well, I always have to be 10%. And that's nonsense, right? So getting not caught in these traps is a matter of choosing to educate yourself, choosing to be calm and rational, and, and, and choosing to not follow your instincts um, versus following a, a more of a plan. But I'll tell you, that, uh, we, you and I and uh, all the great work you're doing with your podcast and stuff – 
we can try to present this kind of light to people, but it's up to people to choose to want to organize their life in a logical manner because that choice has to be there. Because if you just follow impulse, that road rarely goes to good places. Yeah, that 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 was beautifully said, and and just like uh, how a lot of books have been written over the years, uh, books like the vegetarian myth or whatever, I feel like a book has to be written like the lean myth or something. You know, when people see these uh, Instagram photos of people being super lean and uh, smiling on the beach and sitting under under a palm tree and looking into the distance, it's not it's not the reality. The reality is that when you're at seven percent body fat. Really, all you can think about is your next meal, and uh, you're more interested in your plate of broccoli and chicken than your girlfriend when she's naked. So that. Oh my God! By a long shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, just just to close this podcast before I ask you where people can find you, uh, just speaking of pizzas and uh, rational thinking, what do you? What are your plans, like eating plans for the holidays? I mean, we're right in the middle of the holiday season. Um, how do you recommend generally uh, people to handle these periods and what are your personal strategies? Sure, that's a great question. So, you know, number one, and this is maybe a bit late for most people, but still I think in time for some, plan on maintaining or gaining during the holidays. You have all the rest of the year to do fat loss phases if you're so inclined. Why on God's green earth would you plan a fat loss based through the holidays? At RP, we have an annual big sale. We just had it on Black Friday, which is, um, you know, right after Thanksgiving. We have a huge coaching sale. And as soon as that email goes out, the first thing the coaches say is, by the way, you can delay the start of your plan until early January. We actually try to talk people out of starting their plans. Some people won't have it. They're like, no, I want to start tomorrow. And you're like, okay, we really recommend that you don't. They're like, I really want to. Okay, here are the risks. They're like, okay, I don't care. And they're like, okay, great. And some of those people do very well. Some don't. Um, so choice number one is just simply don't diet through the holiday. Choice number two is dieting or not through the holidays, make sure that if you are inclined to gain a lot of weight, if you're not the kind of person that even on a mass phase can just kind of let loose, Make sure to plan the meals that you're going to have and super enjoy and eat a shitload, and then other meals don't. So, like, if you have a day in which you're going to a Christmas party at, you know, 7 p.m., and it's open bar, tons of hors d'oeuvres, and then a real dinner, and you just get drunk with your friends, through the, the early part of that day, keep your calories lower, mostly protein, very little carbs or fat, lots of fiber, and, and, and so maybe some fruits and tons of veggies. Stay nice and full. Um, and then, you know, you're going to have a 2,000 calorie deficit coming in to the party. And even if you eat 4,000 calories at the party, that's a 2,000 calorie surplus instead of a 4,000 calorie surplus, right? So yeah. it, it, I think when some people think holidays, they just think, fuck all the rules and I'll just eat shit the entire day. Like, if you just have some lower calorie meals, uh, you know, during the day and just save one or two big meals during any particular day that you're partying and don't party every single day. Just, you know, the parties that you were invited to go to those. And when you're not partying, just eat relatively normally. That's the best way to do it. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's strategies about how to like manage your eating at parties. I don't even want to get into those. Cause I think when you party, you should fucking party. Um, yeah. just don't do it all the fucking time and make sure that you're, um, you know, probably just being in the right phase. I think that the phasic thing solves almost all the problems. If you're in a maintenance phase or, or a surplus, the holidays are just the most amazing time because you surplus is like the best. So your surplus and holiday is like bring it on, right? But if you're, if you're in a fat loss phase through the holidays, like a, I just, it's just so few things that I can see about that. The only 
example that comes to mind in which that's okay to do is if you're dieting for the Arnold Classic, which is a pro bodybuilding show that occurs every March, you have to diet through the holidays. But at that point, you're a professional physique athlete. Then none of this applies to you because you're a fucking war machine and you're a robot and you do what it takes, period. Right? But if you're not that person, why are you dieting through the holidays? It's one of those – a lot of people think like it's some kind of challenge. Like, oh, I could do it. I could diet through the holidays. Well, yeah, you can probably shoot yourself in the foot and be okay and just walk yourself to the hospital. But when you get there, the nurses will be like, how did this happen? You're like, I did it to see if I was tough enough. They'll be like, well, are you? You're like, yep. Like, well, you still have a fucking bullet in your foot? They're like, oh, shit, you're right. Like, I – been a limp the rest of my life. Like, you, there's many, many ways in which you can prove your toughness. Dieting through the holidays just doesn't have to be one of them. You know, you can prove you're tough by never seeing your children again. But why the hell wouldn't you want to see your children again? You know what I mean? It's just, uh, I think some people get in this mentality where they're like, no, I could do it. And it's like, I believe you, but let's just do it later. Yeah. That's my advice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Having, having, being able to practice self restraint is one of the key, uh, qualities that you can develop as a body composition conscious individual. But sometimes part of that self-restraint is actually refraining from practicing self-restraint and actually delaying your fat loss phases. So we're very- 100%. The long term. The long term. Some of the people that are the most productive in this world, to use the work analogy, are the ones that take – when they when they're on weekends, they don't even answer their phones. They just disappear. They have tons of fun and they come back and they're super productive during the week. Being productive doesn't mean you're always checking Instagrams and the social media isn't always working because a lot of those people just drive themselves insane. Being productive means you do a good job when it's time to do good work. When it's not, it's time to rest hard. So if you're in the holidays, it's a really great time to take a month or two or three to do a maintenance or a surplus and really do a really good job at everything and, and really just make sure that you get everything out of it. And then you have the rest of the months of the year to diet. Why not just get the best of all worlds? Um, that's just something I, I think people could, could, could give some thought in this time of the year. I think it's pretty convincing. Right. Very, very, very well said. Uh, thank you so much for all the amazing inputs that you just gave. So lastly, please tell people where they can find your work and all the resources that you want them to check. You know, I'm actually, I joined a cult where we want the world to end in a huge, like, uh, rubble of chaos. So I'm actually deleting all of my posts from social media because I want there to be less positive information out there. Um, and I'm leaving altogether on a spaceship. Damn it. I, I want to come up with this cool shit in like bars and, and when I'm out with people. What you need to do is hang out with more Americans because your accent alone is as much cool shit as I ever need to hear. Just hearing you say the word cool shit, I'm like, holy shit, you sound like Arnold or Jean-Claude Van Damme. I want to be your friend. <laughs> oh. I'm telling you, in America, your accent is fucking amazing. I don't know. In the, where You live in the, in the Netherlands or? I'm, I'm Hungarian by origin. Well, so in the Netherlands, you probably have a cool accent too. Just don't hang out in Hungary because then you sound like everybody else. Sorry, but I, I swear to God, I hate Skype so goddamn much. Um, so um, at RP, D-R-M-I-K-E, RP Dr. Mike on Instagram, at RP Strength on Instagram, uh, renaissanceperiodization.com uh, on the internet, uh, renaissanceperiodization on Facebook, and Mike Isretel, my public Facebook account um, is the place to find me. Uh, that's where to go. Um, cool information, all stuff. And I'm trying to start a Twitter, but apparently some like troll bought up my Twitter name and I have to fight them for it or something. So maybe someday I'll be on Twitter. Hey guys, I just want to tell you again that your inputs for this podcast will help it grow more than anything. And your requests, ideas, and comments will contribute to awesome content going live on this channel and podcast more than anything. 
So if you want to contribute, the best thing you can do is to go on Facebook and look up sustainable self-development. You'll find both the page and the Facebook group that is dedicated to discussions and ideas being thrown around. Go there and note down your comments about what kinds of topics or guests you want to be featured on this podcast and YouTube channel in the future. Just keep in mind the general theme of this podcast and my YouTube channel, which is to help people becoming their best selves in terms of lifestyle as it pertains to fitness and general personal development. This podcast is really dedicated to self-improvement, both physically and mentally. So keep that in mind. So thanks again for tuning in and see you next time.